Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. All right, EJ. First domino has fallen. We're pouring one out for Josh McDaniels. And I'll tell you what, I'm giving him the good stuff. This is the uh, the cask strength, Woodenville, from up by you. Ooh. You're a Washingtonian. Yep. This is, uh, what, 100, 116, 117 proof? So yeah. uh, it's going to be a good day for me. But, of course, <laughs> even though this is the Week 9 preview, we have to start the show talking about everything going on in Raiderland because the GM, coach, OC, and quarterback are all either fired or replaced as of today. Broke in the middle of the night. We're recording this on Wednesday, by the way. Uh, This is going out Friday. But it happened in the middle of the night last night. For whatever reason, they decided to break it literally at like 10 o'clock on a Tuesday my time. Uh, And it, it took a lot of people by surprise. Not necessarily that it happened, but more so when it happened. Because it was right after the trade deadline, hours after the trade deadline. And it's one of those like, okay, well, if everybody's going to get fired anyway, like, why weren't you selling off the key pieces that you could have got assets for? You know, why is Devontae Adams still there? Why is Josh Jacobs still there? Um, the whole thing's just kind of weird. What was your first reaction? Oh, unfortunately, it was awakeness. Um, I'd been I'd been asleep for about two hours and for some reason rolled over and couldn't get back to sleep, which is a little weird for me. So like an idiot, I picked up my phone Hmm. first mistake and I saw your DM (laughs) and I was like, oh, and then my brain turned on. So I was awake for three hours in the middle of the night thinking about all this first reaction The timing is interesting in multiple respects. I can't remember a full house cleaning of coach, GM, and OC midseason for anybody. Like, that might just be my memory failing, but I don't remember full house cleaning for anybody midseason. Usually it doesn't happen. Coach, yes. GM, usually before the start of the next draft season, you know, directly at the end of the season give a new GM at least a little bit of runway. Um, I can't remember this happening. So that was one. Two was the same reaction you had. Oh, trade deadline. It's like, are you going to do anything? Are you going to do anything? You didn't do anything? Bam, you're out of here. Like, I was waiting to see if you might improve the team at the deadline. You didn't. Bye. You're done. And the third was, he's pretty much earned it. 
the timing is weird, but the result is not. There was nothing about the McDaniels led Raiders that made me go, oh man, I think they're pulling the plug too early. Like if they just hung on a little bit more, this would have, no, nothing felt like it was turning around. It felt like the same mistakes being repeated. And I don't think there was any hope in that fan base. Now, this is the second time in three years that they've had an interim head coach. Um, Not a great look for an organization. They are also still currently paying John Gruden to coach the team. So, (laughs) or to not coach the team, as it were. They got a lot of money tied up in two guys that are no longer associated with the franchise. Also, not a great look for a franchise. But I believe the sort of sigh of relief I heard middle of the night probably makes it worth it for Raiders fans. Nobody felt very good about the direction of the team. I didn't find anybody in any corner of Raiders fandom that was like holding out hope that McDaniels was going to be the savior. I think that ship had pretty much sailed. And so this had to happen. There were some interesting reports. I think it was Diana Rossini. I can't remember who exactly put it out. So forgive me if I'm incorrect where she was talking to other teams and they're like, yeah, we were trying to get their guys, you know, Josh, like teams were trying to get Josh Jacobs. Teams were trying to get Devante. Um, I imagine Jacoby Myers was probably a target for, for some people. And uh, according to these reports, like Raiders just didn't pick up the phone for anybody. Like they, they, they ghosted everybody. So I'm not entirely sure when Ziegler got let, like, was he let go to the point where there was just nobody to make a deal in the first place, um, which which in itself would be kind of a wild thing because like clearly the Raiders could have gotten some picks. Um, there was also another report that like earlier there was uh, an ask of a second round pick for Josh Jacobs, and Baltimore said no. And uh, I I mean if I've if I was them, I would have been like, okay, well, what about a three? <laughs> we'll, we'll take a three for Josh Jacobs. You know, I just feel like there was a missed opportunity there for whoever was running the Raiders yesterday. Maybe that was nobody um, to to squeeze a little bit of blood out of that stone because they're going to need all the assets they can get uh, going into this draft to to maybe maybe try to get a new quarterback. Uh, depends on how AOC does. You and I are both big Aiden O'Connell fans. And uh, Ian Rappaport put out a tweet today saying that uh, his source in the Raiders building, when he asked why O'Connell was starting, and the source said, because he's our best quarterback. Doesn't really surprise me, and I know it doesn't surprise you either, uh, but at the same time, if the Raiders end up with a top three pick, I, I still have to imagine Drake May would be a higher priority than Aiden O'Connell. And I say that as somebody who loves Aiden O'Connell. So uh, I, I I would have definitely tried to, to get more draft assets yesterday. They didn't. So we're, we're rolling with it at this point. It's the Antonio Pierce show. Um, can't possibly get worse, right? The best thing, if you're a Raiders fan, to come out of this is that AOC is going to get his reps. Because all rookies need reps. There will be bumps. I am not here to try and sell you that it will be perfect or amazing or anything else. It won't. He's a rookie. All rookies need reps to get through those bumps and hopefully learn from them and improve. But without those reps, they don't do it. Period. I don't care who they are. And he needed to get those reps. 
he probably wasn't going to get them next year based on how the team was trending. There's enough season left that he's going to get more reps than a guy like Sam Howell got at the end of last year. He's going to get more of that water under the bridge. He is going to get more of those bad throws out of his system and more of those, oh, I can't beat that coverage. I'm going to have to do something else moments like off the deck. And that's going to let us see who he really is as a pro quarterback. And that is the best news going forward is that there are enough games left for him to really cut the rough edges off see what's left, and for the Raiders to make a decent assessment of his play. Did he improve week to week? Was he better on the things that he screws up in the next couple of weeks by the end of the season? That's real meaningful stuff at the game's most meaningful position. That's the, uh, I'm sorry, silver lining? Ouch. Oh, oh, EJ. I know. I know you're a dad, but come on. I had to. I had to. (laughs) I, you know, I will say at least I have a reason to watch Raider games, you know, to see how Aiden does, because I, I do genuinely, it, it's, it's going to sound crazy that I have high expectations for a fifth round rookie quarterback, but I, I do like I, I really did like Aiden a lot as a prospect. So um, that will certainly make the games interesting for me to watch. Uh, my final note on it before we start previewing the upcoming games for this weekend Losing games doesn't get coaches fired. Losing locker rooms does. And especially when you lose a locker room on national television. Anybody who watched that Lions game and and saw saw the difference in terms of uh, Dan Campbell versus Josh McDaniels in terms of command of a room and command of a building, you knew he was done by the end of that game like it's just there's no way there's no you know way. what that reminded me of the contrast between those two folks that you just mentioned what when we were at the senior bowl and they had justin herbert throw and then they had anthony gordon throw yeah two very different things and we were like oh man is there is there anything your agent could have done anthony to get you like separated by a guy or two because that that was the worst possible look for you because it's that's not the strength of your game and it's the same with mcdaniels right the strength of dan campbell's game as a head coach is that he has a deep love of his players he has a very strong connection with his players he expects them to measure up to a certain standard and like josh mcdaniels is is the second guy there and he has none of that stuff it was very clear throughout most of his tenure not just the game against the Lions and so to see it sort of in stark contrast sideline to sideline shot to shot it was like oh man this this couldn't be a worse look for you right now yeah it was a it was a stark juxtaposition that's for sure um but, you know, we're not going to talk about the Raiders all day, and I'm sure Raiders fans are happy we're not going to talk about them all day because they just kind of want this season to be over at this point. Uh, we do have a lot of really, really good teams that are actually championship contenders that we want to go through today, including two in the AFC uh, in a long-awaited battle. We've kind of had this game circled since since summer. Uh, and actually, no, even longer than that because we found out this one was going to be in Germany as one of the first games that actually got quote-unquote released on the schedule. So it's been many, many, many months that we've been waiting to talk about Dolphins, Chiefs in Germany. It's finally here. And the Dolphins, who have been banged up 
a lot uh, in the first half of the season or so are finally starting to actually get healthy. Uh, they're not all the way there yet, but they're starting to get a lot of key players back. Ramsey came back. Um, you know, potentially some of their offensive linemen might be coming back for this one. Again, it's on Wednesday. We're recording this before we get the injury reports, but it's not out of the question that Teron Armstead's coming off IR. Uh, Hunt is day-to-day. He might go. Connor Williams might go. Like, it's very possible that for the first time all year, we get an entire Dolphins offensive line and an entire Dolphins starting secondary in the same game. We are in week nine, and that still hasn't happened. It might happen this week. Those things would both be huge for this team. But I want to go back to the quarterback. We talked about the quarterback at the top with Aiden and how important it is. Tua has been incredibly important for this Dolphins team. Projected stats for the season. 70% completion, 5,134 yards, 38 TDs, 15 interceptions, and a 108 rating. You might say, oh, uh, you know, I don't really like the TD to interception ratio. I'm sure McDaniel doesn't either. But the really important number there is 5134 for yards because nine QBs in NFL history have achieved a 5,000-yard season. Those nine guys, Marino, Breeze, Brady, Stafford, Manning, the Elder, Roethlisberger, Mahomes, and Herbert. Special company. Like... There's just not many in the history of the league. If he tops 5,000 yards, it's special stuff. I think it will probably end some of the debates. I have no illusion it will end all of the debates about Tua. He's been playing football at an extremely high level. If this offense comes in healthy, especially with the O-line, the O-line, even in its injured state, has been mashing people of late. Pass protections up and down, but they have been crushing people in the run game if they get those guys back in addition or have most of those guys healthy this is a really difficult team to deal with they have speed all over the offense that makes you know maybe with the exception of tight end other than that they have speed everywhere in the offense makes matchups difficult it makes focus extremely important because you can blow it for one play and they'll score they'll go the distance and Chiefs are going to have to deal with that. Both teams are going to have to deal with uh, travel that other teams, um, you know, maybe are getting more used to with some of the London games. Germany's uh, even farther <laughs> in terms mm-hmm. of travel. It has affected some teams every year. Some teams seem to be getting better at dealing with that. That's a factor as well. But I'm excited. The atmosphere is going to be lit. This is not their first game in Germany. That was last year. This is their first game in Frankfurt. That game last year felt kind of like a mini Super Bowl in terms of the lead up and all the press and just the energy in the stadium. I'm I'm excited to see round two. And honestly, a lot of times these games that are overseas aren't necessarily the NFL's best product. Like this is freaking Dolphins Chiefs. This is very much the NFL's best product. I'm excited for the German fans. I'm excited for us to get to see it should be just awesome in all respects i mean this this might be the afc championship honestly um now again there are a lot of other great afc teams i know bengals fans are going to jump down my throat and bills fans and and all them but like it's it's not completely unrealistic to say that these two are going to be there in the very end so i'm happy that 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 honestly i'm happy that german fans are getting to see 
this kind of game. You know, they're 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 getting to see what is essentially a playoff game. That's that's really really cool that the league did that because uh, I I know that um, Arrowhead or rather the people who make money from Arrowhead would have loved for this one to be in Kansas City uh, for all for all the revenue that it would have generated. Uh, but it's it's really cool that this one's going to be in front of the German fans. Um, one note on uh, the Dolphins' offense, you know, we talked about. Two with throwing for a bunch of yards. They're also the most explosive run game in the entire NFL. And, you know, schematically speaking, what I find interesting about this matchup of Dolphins run game against Chiefs run defense, and Chiefs have a very, very good run defense, is Miami's a very outside zone heavy team, as you would expect in a Mike McDaniel offense. They run it about 40% of the time, or at least close to 40%, which is substantial. <laughs> relatively speaking in the NFL yep. like I would say the most common runs that you're going to see are really more uh more inside zone than outside zone for a lot of teams and so Miami's one of the few teams that's like we run outside zone and we do it a lot Kansas City meanwhile even with all of their two high safety structures again it's a very quarters heavy defense uh they do play a bunch of cover too but like their safeties are are off the line of scrimmage a lot or rather uh, like 12 yards deep a lot. Um, they still only allow 3.7 yards per carry against outside zone, even with those two high safety structures. It's a very good defensive line. The linebackers are rangy and fast and aggressive. The safeties, specifically when they're coming from depth, they take excellent angles. So these cutbacks, like they, they never get their ankles broken on cutbacks other than like one time against the Chargers. Uh, ironically, like two weeks ago, but that was on inside zone. It wasn't even on outside zone, but on outside zone specifically, like this defense is so disciplined. They're so aggressive. They're so fast. It's honestly a very tough matchup for this Dolphins run game. Uh, so I have a theory that if the Dolphins are going to move the ball a lot, it's probably not going to be on the ground. And oddly enough, against a very good chief secondary, they, they might get more success through the air than on the ground. I wouldn't doubt that. And like Waddle popped off versus the Pats last week, seven for 121. Five of those were for first downs. Like, so yes, it's a good catch total. Yes, it's a good yardage total. But he was also that glue guy that was keeping them moving, being ahead of the sticks, helping them score points. And I'd expect him to be a focal point of Miami's passing attack because Spagnuolo is going to put the clamps on Tyreek Hill. <laughs> like, they're. <laughs> Or at he least is try. Not, <laughs> he is not going to allow Tyreek Hill. I mean, yes, try. Everyone tries, and lots of people aren't able to. But Spagnuolo knows what he can do. He was in the building at the same time as Tyreek. He is very familiar with working against him. And I do bet that he's going to sell out a fair bit to say, not you, anybody else. And, you know, bad news for the Chiefs. They have somebody else. They have a bunch of somebody else's. But I don't think he wants it to be Tyreek Hill that sort of pops the top of the Chiefs defense. So he's going to he's going to bring some creativity, but the focus is going to be on Hill and moving them off to other options. Waddle's shown multiple times that he can be that guy. He's going to need to be that guy if the Dolphins want to have success against like you said a very disciplined defense with very good corners. That's also a big part of their run game. Those guys are extremely physical. They're involved in the run game. They're not sort of what I would 
type as turn and run corners. I mean, Legereus Sneed, McDuffie, and all those guys, they're going to stick their nose in. They love helping stop the run. And they're going to need all that because Miami can hurt you in multiple ways. And if they do manage, they being the Chiefs, to slow Hill down enough that they've got to pivot, there's still a lot of other options. And Tua is not one of those quarterbacks that will only lock in on his favorite target. He's more than happy to throw to the open guy. And if the open guy's waddle, he's still going to do a lot of damage. Well, why don't we talk specifically about how we think uh, Spags is going to play against Tyreek? Because obviously he's very familiar with Tyreek. He had to practice against him for a really, really, really long time. <laughs> he's well aware of what Tyreek can do. From a schematic perspective, um, I don't necessarily think they're going to play cover two to handle Tyreek. And that's kind of like the default answer that people will give. It's like, oh, they play cover two, you get a half field safety over the top, play play a cloud corner underneath, like he's, he's going to have a guy over him and a guy under him. With how the Dolphins use motion, I don't really think that's the way to go. Because I was looking at all the snaps of Miami against cover two, and like when they start to get frustrated by that, that's when they do that kind of like uh, what Kyle Shanahan called it cheat motion, like the one where you start Tyreek at three and then you you basically do like the CFL motion uh, and kind of wheel him down the boundary. And they would run dagger off of that. And, you know, they're basically doing that to clear out either the pole runner up the middle seam or to clear out the safety. And then you run Tyreek behind it and he starts at the three and then goes to the two and then he ends up at the one and he's wheeling down the boundary. And then, oh, all of a sudden he's cutting back inside to the middle of the field and there's fucking nobody there because you because you played cover two thinking that he was going to be going down the boundary and he's not. Um, so, like, that's kind of how they create those windows in the seam against cover two. And I I. I have an intense fear, if I was Spags, of doing that because I, I feel like they would just respond with that. And every time Tyreek gets the ball 20 yards down the field, it could very easily be 40. So in the interest of not giving up potentially a 40-yard gain, if I'm Spags, I lean into what they do a lot this year, which is quarters. Mm-hmm. Like they, they are very, very quarters heavy. They've been very cover two heavy in the past. This year, they're taking a lot of the snaps they were in cover two and putting them into the quarters bucket or putting them into the man coverage bucket. They also play a lot of cover one. But with quarters specifically, you can kind of tailor the type of quarters you're going to play to wherever Tyreek is on the field, whether it's two by two or three by one. You know, if he's the isolated receiver backside in three by one, uh, you could do a cone call where that backside safety is basically just bracketing him in and out. So, okay, there's your double team. If uh, if he's the number three on the trip side, you can call poach. So you're getting that backside safety carrying him uh, if he goes vertical from the number three spot. Um, if he's the number two, you know, assuming the number three is going to be a tight end in line. Um, and so he's just playing like a quote unquote traditional slot, slot receiver role. Um, you can do stuff... Uh, like, honestly, what I would do is just take Tranquil, put Tranquil on the tight end and say, that's your dude. And then you, you you play like Buster or something where, you know, the outside corner has zone eyes waiting for Tyreek to like run the seven route to the sideline. Um, you know, you still get a half field safety over the top to handle number one who's going down the boundary. Like you, you have a guy inside, you, you have a guy outside and you have one over the top. So you're playing three over two. Like I would, I would do that if he's in the slot because then he can't go anywhere. <laughs> uh, you know, if he's outside, <laughs> honestly, if he's outside, I might just play normal ass quarters because again, you get Jalen and you're potentially getting Xavier Howard back, 
And at some point, it's like, well, we paid these guys a lot of money. Let's see if they could just survive against Tyreek and Pressman outside in, in like a normal quarters call. But like it, all of those calls are quarters, but they're a different type of quarters depending on where Tyreek is. And the only time you really have to leave him one-on-one in quarters is if it's like trips to the field and he's the number one threat all the way outside uh, on the trip side. And basically, you're taking a chance that that throw from the far hash is is too risky and that Tua won't take that chance one-on-one. But you have Trent McDuffie outside, right? So if you're in quarters, all you're thinking about is like, okay, well, we trust him to survive one-on-one against Tyreek down the boundary if he's the number one threat to the field. Um, and so there, there's a lot of ways that you can play uh, play quarters and, and get double teams, essentially double teams on Tyreek in various types of quarters um, with, I don't want to say with no risk, but with minimal risk of him breaking the game. And then all you yeah. got to do is just worry about Jalen Waddle breaking the game, right, to your point. Yeah. There's there's risk no matter what because great players are going to get theirs. Now, what you want if you're Spags is for him to get less, not for him to get none. None is, none is not a realistic expectation. Less and less impactful is really big. So you'll see a mix, and you said, yeah, they're going to play some cover one as well. If that's the case, and it is because Spags is not just going to do the same thing over and over again because he knows McDaniels is smart enough to, or McDaniel is smart enough to exploit that. I'm guessing he's going to go all the way back to the Patriots film in week two for some of those cues because they slowed Miami down. They didn't beat them, but they slowed them down. They only scored 24. I know that sounds like only 24. Some teams, like the one I follow, eh, kill for 24 on most weeks, but (laughs) only 24 out of the Dolphins is pretty good. And then Spags can also count on Reed and Mahomes to score four touchdowns. Like He can just say, look, if I keep McDaniel in this offense to 21 points, or 24 points, I'm betting you can get 28, even against that defense. So let's just see if we can play some sympathetic football here and make it all work out in the end because I can't stop all these guys for the entire game. I can slow them down, and then, yep, you're still going to have to score some points offense. Flipping over to the other side, uh, Chiefs offense, uh, much maligned Chiefs offense. Hmm. You know, I, I've I've said the same notes about them over and over and over again this season of like <laughs> it's Mahomes and Kelsey and like the occasional Pacheco game, but we're still waiting for one of their receivers to to be something here. At some point, I, I think the Chiefs need to acknowledge that their only exciting wide receiver is Rasheed Rice. You know, Kadarius Tony on paper should be exciting, but He's not still exciting. not the playmaker that Rasheed Rice is. And no. and again, I wasn't a Rasheed Rice guy when he was coming out of the draft. But like tape is tape. And that mm-hmm. kid is really explosive on tape. Like way more explosive than he was uh, even when he was healthy at SMU. Like that dude ate his Wheaties the second he got drafted by Kansas City. And he looks awesome. So I'm willing to eat crow on that one. I was wrong about Rasheed Rice. He's very explosive after the catch. But my issue is that I feel like they're only using him as a yards after catch threat when I'm like, 
he can clearly run. He's clearly got juice. <laughs> can we give him the ball past the sticks just like a little bit? You know, like can we can we introduce some sort of vertical element to this passing game? Because I don't think any of the other receivers on this team are. I mean, I know because they haven't done it, but like I, if any of them could do it, I think it might be Rasheed Rice just based on what we've seen on tape. Like he looks like the only one that has legitimate, you know, not game breaking, but game tilting juice. And I just want them to use that more. Like I'm, I'm tired of this kind of rotating tryout. Like Skymore didn't work. Fine. Kadarius Tony hasn't lived up to the price we paid for him. Fine. Rasheed Rice looking like he is working should be something they lean into. So if there was ever a time to do it, it's right now. It's interesting with rookies in terms of like mental load management, because some rookies uh, we're talking about receivers specifically come in and some coaching staffs will say, nope, we're only running you a slot and we're giving you half the book. Like, and if it's not that you're not going to play. Right. And then we'll see how you deal with that workload and, and we'll adjust later in the season. Other rookies get come in, they get given the full book on all three positions. Like you're going to have to rotate. We're going to bring you in for whoever you're basically going to be the backup to all three of the starting receivers. You got to know everybody's job, which is a lot in a lot of offenses. That is a huge jump. Be interesting to see how much of the playbook they give him outside because I, I think they should get him there. I think they should probably replace Sky Moore with him if he can handle that load as a rookie. And I also think this would be, you know, addition by addition, which is Sky Moore would be better out of the slot, I think. I really thought he could play outside when he was coming out of college. He played outside against a lot of big corners in college and did very well. He has not done that in the pros whatever reason. I think he might actually be more effective and he's naturally going to get a few less reps in the slot because slot's going to come off before outsides. And Rice is really interesting with the burst. He's shown a lot of burst and he's one of those guys that's shown a lot of burst with the ball in his hands. And some guys are just faster with the ball in their hands. And I wonder if he's one of those guys. (laughs) And I wonder if he's one of those guys because the highlights you see are not necessarily of him dusting people on routes and, you know, throwing the mailbox up and saying, I'm open. It's getting the ball. And then he did it last week, got the ball and he broke an angle like a straight up defender had an angle near the sideline and he just ran through it like he ran fast enough. The guy couldn't get him. That was impressive, but he had the ball in his hands. <laughs> like, I'm wondering if he can do it like just flat out track me release and go bust somebody because You'd think that was a transferable skill, but it's not with everybody. So, But I'd rather see that experiment going on than the continuation of the Sky Moore experiment, which really doesn't look like at this point it's going to pay dividends in that position, and you might get more out of him in a different spot. So I know it's a very touchy subject about moving guys around in positions, whether you're talking about offensive line or wide receivers, that they're not just interchangeable pieces in Madden. You can't just swap them and have them be more effective. But I actually wonder in this case if that might, maybe the light goes on for either one of them more than it has in their current alignment. And I'm all for that. And the Chiefs need it. I would also say they need to um, get a little bit more out of their run game. Like every once in a while, we'll see a, a 
quote unquote Pacheco game, um, this this might need to be one because I think keeping Miami off the field is is paramount here. Like that that should be priority number one is like long drives, control the clock, give them like four to five possessions per half, not seven. Because uh, mm. the more possessions they get, the more likely yeah. they are to just beat the hell out of you. So keeping them off the field with just a, a Pacheco psychopath game is probably a good idea. Um, you know, we were looking up the stats in terms of of where where do you attack Miami, and on paper, you know, you look at the roster and you're like, oh, you you don't want to run up the gut against the Dolphins. But if you're looking at like the stats, like that's actually kind of the only spot you can run against Miami is guard center guard. Yeah. It's not, it's one of those things that doesn't, (laughs) doesn't look like on the field, what it does on paper. You look at the three guys they have playing in the middle of their defense and you think, Oh man, like I don't want to try and move those guys, you know, good offensive line or not. But in terms of how, again, now half a season has played out, Teams have had more success doing that than running outside. Now, not great success. We're not talking about gashing them for huge gains. But in terms of efficiency, if I've only got 20 runs in my playbook in terms of there's only 20 plays out of the you know, 60 I'm going to get during the game that I want to put towards run plays, where am I going to get the most for my 20? It probably shouldn't be 10 and 10 inside and outside you should probably have a few more runs inside and see how that works. Some of them in the script and some of them later on situationally. But if you're basically kind of flipping a coin and saying, should I try outside or inside? They've been really good against the outside run, probably because they see one of the very best outside run games in the league every day in practice. So they understand how to stop it. But that's one of those things that's a little bit odd and yeah the Chiefs need a run game too it sounds odd that we're talking about a team that's you know atop its division for the most part and we're saying oh man they gotta gotta get their pass game together oh man they gotta get their run game together they're still winning a lot of games and look it wouldn't be a bootleg football podcast if we were talking about the Chiefs and didn't have a just staggering Mahomes stat so I had to look it up last week Bit of an off week. Mahomes was still suffering from the flu. How much? Eh, debatable, but he didn't look like himself. I don't expect that to continue. Not because, not only because he's had some time to heal, but Kansas City has lost two consecutive games three times total since Mahomes took over as quarterback. Six years. Yeah. And the Chiefs have not lost three straight since weeks nine through 13 in 2017 which was his rookie season <laughs> when he didn't like, play like that's that's right. Alex Smith yeah uh-huh so i they don't lose back to back games a lot hardly ever and even with travel and us talking about how to fine tune an offense that's still winning games and having a very good opponent on the other side of the field numbers say this one probably still leans towards the chiefs which is just a credit to Mahomes being a complete and utter alien. Uh, I, f- I forgot to actually read off the numbers. Uh, rushing attempts against Miami this year with the point of attack being outside the guards is 91 for 224, so two and a half yards per carry. If you're trying to run outside, if you're trying to run inside on them, 
Uh, it's 97 for 417 or 4.3 per carry. Specifically on inside zone uh, and and duo, it's five yards per carry. So again, not like amazing, <laughs> but livable. You're you're yeah. really only going to get in trouble if you run outside on them. Um, the Dolphins' defense uh, against the pass. You know, Javon Holland's now out of concussion protocol. Sounds like Howard's going to play. Obviously, Jalen came back against the Patriots, and literally the first time he was targeted in that game got an interception <laughs> in like a 45-yard return. So welcome to Miami, Jalen Ramsey. Um, and then all those guys are are playing behind a pass rush that is uh, third in sacks and, and fifth in total pressures. So it, it feels like the Dolphins' defense... Um, you know, it feels like they've had several games where we're like, man, all that talent, I feel like they should be playing playing better than they are. Mm-hmm. Well, they haven't had all their talent, <laughs> which is why they haven't been playing better than they are. And now, for the first time all year, they might actually have all 11 on the field. And uh, yeah, you should be very scared of all 11 when they're together because... That's a hell of a roster right there and a hell of a defensive coordinator. And I refuse to believe that this defense is going to be average all year long. They shouldn't be with everybody that they've assembled. But like you said, haven't had all the superheroes on the same team, on the same field at the same time. And now we're starting to see that midseason. Same thing that we've said about, you know, one of their competitors in the Bengals. Like it hasn't been right until now. They're starting to get guys back. Joe's finally healthy, and boom. We're going to be saying the same thing, I feel like, about the Dolphins' defense as as we did on paper in the summer. When we looked at all those guys and went, holy crap, are you kidding? That's a lot of talent on the defensive side of the ball. It's going to make things really hard for their opponents. Haven't seen that yet, but we're looking forward to it. And just in general, storylines all over this game, the Frankfurt setting, you know, where they are in terms of the season, their records, the, you know, the foreshadowing for the end of the season for the AFC. Like this, this is a popcorn game, pure and simple. I know it's going to be on at like 630 in the morning for us. So maybe popcorn's not your favorite breakfast food, but grab whatever you want and dig into this one. It's going to be prime football in the middle of the season. Uh, another phenomenal game that we have uh, this week is Seahawks-Ravens, another one that you and I have been looking forward to since the summer. Um, you know, back when back when we first saw that one, especially when we, were, when we were doing the summer series, we were like, oh, that could be a fun little AFC-NFC matchup that we don't get very often. Like, there's some flavor to that. And now we're looking at it like, oh, these two teams might end up being like in the conference championship game for their respective conferences. Like this, this is a big boy brawl here between Seattle Mm -hmm. and Baltimore. Um, You will pry a pick out of me for this game from my cold dead hands. I refuse to make it because I genuinely do not know who's going to win. All I know is that it's probably going to be fun as hell because the Seahawks were already really, really good. Um, both on offense and on defense, and they just loaded up even more at the trade deadline. They got Leonard Williams. Like They they took uh, the lead in the NFC West and basically just hit the gas pedal. They're like, we're not going to give this back. Give us Leonard Williams. Make our defensive line, which is already really good at getting the quarterback, even better at getting the quarterback. Um, yeah, this, this one's going to be fun. 
NFC young power versus a surging AFC front runner. We thought that the Ravens very well could be an AFC front runner, depending on health and how quickly they adapted to what we thought was going to be a positive offensive change. Seems like that's all lining up for the most part. And the Seahawks have reloaded twice very strongly in the last two drafts. They exceeded expectations last year, stumbled a little bit out of the early gate this year, but they have refound their footing and are playing power football, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So let's start with the Seahawks D because, uh, you know, that's been the headline right near the trade deadline. They added, you know, two new additions. They got Frank Clark back and then Leonard Williams coming over from the Giants. They're loading up for a run. Let's be honest. They're looking at their last two draft classes. The fact that Geno Smith is playing very good football and saying, why not us right now? And John Schneider pulls the trigger to get Leonard Williams. Daryl Taylor and Derek Hall are going to have to, you know, turn it up and try and make up some pass rush in Nuosu's absence. And I think they can because they're not going to be focal points. Like they don't have to be the guy. Um, the guy just got imported from the Giants. Like a lot of people, if you watch Leonard Williams, teams focus on him. He doesn't necessarily have the shine, and he certainly didn't because, again, he was playing next to Dexter Lawrence. We talked about Dexter earlier this week as an amazing mutant of a football player, So, but they still paid attention. Leonard Williams was a very high draft pick for a reason, played very good football, um, especially after he got to the Giants. So this is a big deal. I know a lot of people went, oh, they got another defensive lineman. Like, they already had a very good defensive line. Clint Hurt has been pulling blitzes out of his backside since week two that were really fun and creating pressure um, where there wasn't any before, and he just got two more tools to do that. He's already been doing a good job. And John Schneider said, hey, you got any more room in that basket for some extra Halloween candy? Like, I'll give you two more. He's like, oh, sure, give it to me. So... The Hawks get a solid amount of explosive plays on D versus the run. They're seventh in the league last week with seven TFLs slash no gain plays if you throw those all in the same bucket. So it's not just about rushing the passer. They're also kind of smashing the run up near the line of scrimmage. And they're going to have their hands full because Baltimore can do both. Like Baltimore can throw the ball really well. We'll talk about Lamar when we get to the Ravens offense. But last week their running game showed up. Gus got back on track. Like, again, when you're talking about good on good, just like we did in the first game this week, this is going to be, it doesn't matter which unit's on the field for which team. There are going to be great matchups. There's going to be, I would say, just really even contests. And there's a couple we're looking forward to specifically. But what are the things on the Hawks, D, that excite you besides Devin Witherspoon? Because you stole my joke. (laughs) What joke did I steal? Like three hours ago when you're reading the script, you're like, hey, by the way, we're getting Zay on Witherspoon reps. I'm like, hmm. Oh, I don't read your notes before I put my notes in. We just happen to both be like, oh, it's Witherspoon and Zay week. Yay. (laughs) Speaking of good on good, uh, and it's not going to matter. Like sometimes we're really looking forward to one defense versus one offense. But when it gets to the other side, hey, maybe that's the time you go get another beer. Don't do that in this game. Like, stock up, have your cooler beside the couch because it doesn't matter who swaps onto the field. You're going to be seeing great players on both sides that have, again, implications for down the road. There's a lot of foreshadowing for a, you know, week week nine matchups to 
you know, week 17, week 18, week 19. Schematically speaking, uh, on defense, the Seahawks don't blitz uh, that much on early downs. But when they do, uh, it's a really good answer for them for early down runs, and they've been doing it more uh, since since Spoon became the nickel because they're like, <laughs> we want that dude getting the ball. <laughs> so uh, they, they've been sending him off the edge on early downs a little bit more than they, they would send their past nickels. Now, they only allow 3.1 yards per carry uh, when blitzing on first or second down uh, since Spoon became the starter. I feel like there's like a... A before spoon and after spoon yes. in, the, in the Seahawks defensive timeline uh, when they figured out like oh he's 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 the guy he's that guy uh, yeah he's that guy um, but I do think that we could see specifically with spoon them sending him off the edge on early downs more uh, even than they already have been in this game because I think he's a pretty solid answer for you know do we let Lamar read uh, Taylor or Reed Hall, or do we just send Spoon after Lamar and then tell the edges to just crash on the run? Right, it, like it's a lot easier to play the Ravens' style of run game where the quarterback is a threat if you're just sending extra bodies into the backfield, and then everybody has a job. Everybody's playing that job full speed as fast as possible, um, and then you just have to hope that they they don't have any sort of of, uh, of of screens off of that <laughs> that they might hit you with, or if they do have a screen, like you gotta you gotta get your DBs ready to to beat some blocks and tackle in space, which the Seahawks absolutely can do. They have a bunch of dudes back there that can do that. But like once you start blitzing into the run on early downs, then it does put a lot of pressure on the secondary to be able to tackle in space because they will start hitting you with screens. So if anybody could do it, it's the Seahawks secondary. They just have to be aware of that. But I, I feel like that's probably one of their better answers for the Ravens run game is to just match violence with violence. And uh, boy, there's there's few people that can be as violent in the backfield as, as Devin Witherspoon. They're going to try and punch first a lot. I think that's clear, not only from their tape leading up till now, what Hurts put on tape, how they've used their guys, like you said, how they've been aggressive on early downs versus the run. I don't think they're going to sit back in any way, shape, or form. In fact, that would be one of the most shocking results is if Hertz came out and like played short zones and just did a bunch of read and react stuff. I'd I'd, I'd be scratching my head pretty hard. I expect full on like dog will hunt. We're going to go get those guys on both sides and we'll see who wins for the Seahawks offense. The offensive line, especially Cross, is going to have to make sure the pass per tightens up because the Ravens can put a very good pass rush together. Cross had a rough week eight. He's coming back off injury. He's still rusty. He allowed six pressures and a sack, in, including a sack in 40 snaps. So six total pressures. One of them was a sack in 40 snaps. Not great. Offensive lineman, it's really nice if you don't hear their name all day. Heard his name a bunch. Anthony Bradford at the right guard spot wasn't much better. Five pressures, including two QB hits. You don't want those stacking up on Geno in 40 snaps. Uh, quick passes. You talked about screens on the Ravens side. Seahawks are going to have to have some of them too. We know they've got a lot of screens in their arsenal. It's about when they use them, I think, but they're going to have to have a bunch of answers 
to get the ball out of Geno's hands really quickly because I don't think right now the state of their offensive line they can hold up against the Ravens rush because it's really good and the offensive line for Seattle obviously suffered some injuries at the tackle spot they're still kind of getting their legs back under them this is not a this is not a get right game by any stretch the opposing defense has big sharp shiny teeth so don't try that and while the passing game which we start off with is getting all the headlines 16 catches between the top three wide receivers last week and we'll talk about one of them later the running game's on fire this is what they imagined when they drafted walker and then a year later drafted charbonnet they combined for 9.1 yards per carry between the two of them last week 9.1 you're just talking about the dolphins allowing like two and a half or three or five like double that on every run this is like pete carroll fantasy right he just looks <laughs> up and they're ripping off basically a first down on every run last week it's he had to be in seventh heaven that's a one-two punch that the seahawks are going to be able to lean on but i don't expect they're going to find that kind of production against the ravens defense because Mike McDonald's not going to allow that to happen, um, but they are going to try it and they're going to have some success because they are, I want to say like at heart, they're a power running team that hasn't been their identity, but it's starting to round into form. And I'm sure at some point Pete's just got that little smile. He's like, mm, I don't know. You could always run it. <laughs> it's, Pete, it's second and 13. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm you just know, saying, Hey, Two nine-yard gains, and we'd have a first. <laughs> uh, my my problem, well, it's I, f- I feel like I'm, you know, first-world problems here. Take your soapbox. My, Take my your soapbox. quote-unquote problem with the Seahawks <laughs> offense is why are you drafting a very, very, very good slot receiver prospect to replace D. Eskridge? or rather what you're not getting out of D. Eskridge, only to then use him like D. Eskridge. Like, yeah, he got uh, four targets in the last game, but his average depth of target was 0.3 yards. Like, wh- why is why is JSN the screen guy in this offense? Why is he uh, the speed-out guy in this offense? Like, where's the seam routes? Where's the deep crosses? Where Where's, where's anything... That's more than 0.3 yards past the line of scrimmage. Like, I get it. Gino doesn't like working the middle of the field as much as he likes working towards the boundaries. Like, that much is clear. He and Russ, like, kindred spirits. They very <laughs> much like working towards, you know, from the numbers now. But can we just call something in the middle of the field that maybe Gino does like, like something that maybe he would get to late as like a, a, a longer developing play. Cause he'll work, he'll work uh, the intermediate and deeper middle. He won't work the short middle as much. So it's like, okay, if, if whatever he does like to hit me between the numbers, if it's like a backside dig or whatever, like, why can't JSN be the one to run the backside dig and potentially get some yards after catch opportunities because he's really good after the catch? Like, why why is he the guy who's just hanging out in the flat on the other side for running flood with the backside dig? Like, why is, why is JSN that one? Can we get nobody else to be in the flat? Why does it have to be him, our first-round pick? 
So even though, again, Geno doesn't like working the, the short middle of the field where a lot of slot receivers operate, like you can still have JSN run routes everywhere else where Geno does like to throw, and they're not doing it. And it pisses me off because, like, why even draft the kid if this is how you're going to use him? You know, it just, I don't know, makes no sense. And there are a lot of offenses around the league that have a lot of success running big slots. And mm-hmm. JSN's not necessarily the sort of, uh, Nate Tice's term is power slot, which I love. He, he doesn't necessarily quite fit the physical profile of guys in that role who are, you know, kind of ultra fast tight ends, really. But it doesn't mean you can't run him on a lot of the same routes because he won on those routes in college. And I think he can win on some of those routes in the pros, too. And I'm with you. Throw some diversity in there because if he showed anything in his college career, this is JSN, it was that he has a diverse skill set. Like he has a diverse palette of things he can do as a wide receiver down the field, on the sidelines, different types of routes, different types of releases versus man versus zone was one of the reasons I liked him as the top receiver coming out in this draft was that it kind of didn't matter. He was like scheme agnostic. He could go anywhere and find a role in that offense. And unfortunately the one he's found so far, and again, it's only eight games in and the Seahawks offense is, you know, slot short guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's, that's sort of a wah, wah, wah for now. I, I keep thinking, I keep believing that they're going to unleash him later in the season, but we haven't seen it yet. And yeah, I'm, I'm getting a little bit itchy to see it. In terms of the defense that uh, JSN and company will be going against, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Mike McDonald this year, how he is one of the best defensive coordinators in the entire NFL, how the Ravens defense is one of the most diverse in the NFL in terms of uh, coverages that they use, you know, how hard they are to prepare for, because it feels like every single week is a totally new game plan. He deserves uh, all the credit in the world for the work that he's done in Baltimore. Um, but there is one tendency that he can't hide. You know, there's one thing that remains the same from week to week, and that is on third down, Mike McDonald is going to blitz the absolute shit out of you. Like that, that is the one thing that remains constant. He has a 50% blitz rate on third and seven plus, which is insane. And 70% of those blitzes end up getting pressure, which is also very high, like conversion rate, I guess, is for lack of a better word. Sure. Um, you know, third and medium, he'll drop it down to to a 30% blitz rate because he'll, you know, at that point, it's more man coverage heavy for them. Um, but then in third and short, it's back up to 52% because he's like, mm, we're going to blitz our way into run defense here. Like, we're going to fit the run through just sheer brute force. So it, when you get to third down, extra bodies will be in the backfield. That's, that's a given. Um, what's not a given is exactly how those bodies are going to get there. You know, talk about diversity in this defense. He's got, I mean, every blitz you can think of. I've and some that you couldn't think of. Yes. They've they've run. Like we've seen four week. Like four week is a very common blitz pattern. Uh they ran five week against Pittsburgh. Like they just they took five, they dropped two out. One of them was clowny. They had like seven guys up there. And then they ran five guys to one side of the offensive line. And just it's like a, taking a 
a crowbar and just prying it open. They're like, you can't block everybody. And they were right. You can't block everybody. <laughs> like it was awesome. Uh, but he just kind of does whatever out there. It's like, he's just making it up from week to week where it's like, he's checking the rule book. He's like, is this legal? Okay, cool. We're going to run that. You see something new every single game. I absolutely love Mike McDonald. He's, he's as unhinged as it gets on third down. And uh, Gino's going to have to be ready for that. Cause boy, it's, it's tough to face this team on third down. We talk a lot about Sandlot, like offense, like, oh, just run down there and I'll throw it up. This is Sandlot defense. Like, I have so many dudes and they're mostly better than yours. And I'm just going to like, hey, hey, guys, guys, come here. Like, all right, I'm going to put like, yeah, six of you over here. And everybody's like, <laughs> six? Like, coach, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, no, trust me, it's going to work. We're just And everybody go deep. <laughs> like... Are, are we going to back anybody off the rush? No, you're all going. <laughs> like That's how he does it. <laughs> Basically six loaded, zero. Like, go. It's so cool to watch. And he's got one of the best defenders in the entire league right now. Roquan's going to be a huge test for the Hawks offense all by himself. He's playing at an elite level in all four directions. Forward, certainly side to side, getting to the edges, and even backwards. And it's... He is a player that can change games right now, and he's surrounded by a whole bunch of other players that can also do that, but he is elevating his level of play. Uh, be shocked if he doesn't make a handful of very good plays in this one. Um, you know, that's no stranger to Hawks fans. They're used to using used to having a very good middle linebacker who makes plays all over the field. Well, Roquan is, you know, approaching Bobby Wagner uh, at his peak type heights right now in Mike McDonald's defense. The Ravens defensive line, they're licking their lips for this Hawks offensive line right now. They've seen the film. They know that there are cracks to be exploited. They know that there are a few pieces of rust and communication errors that they're just hoping to see again because if that happens, they're absolutely going to pay those off. Could shorten the game significantly. That's my sort of biggest fear. If I have a biggest fear for the Hawks is that they just can't get their own line straightened out under this sort of relentless pressure and the Ravens just bury them that way. Did it to Detroit. You know, that's that, that's that's what's kind of giving me pause about it is, uh, you know, we, we've seen the Ravens lose some really weird games this year to teams that maybe they shouldn't have lost to. But we've also seen them uh, square up to some some really, really good teams that are probably going to be playoff. T- well, in Lions' case, it's definitely going to be a playoff team and just beat the shit out of them. So, like, I, the Ravens are very much, like, the threat to Kansas City. And to be perfectly honest, as sacrilegious as this sounds, if the Ravens and Chiefs had to play tomorrow, like, I'd probably take the Ravens. Like, it, it's... It's that level of uh, grossness when you put on the film where you're like, oh, God, like the stank face comes out five plays in. You're like, oh, God, <laughs> like what are, they, what are they doing to these poor men? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> look, look what they did to that offense. Like, is Dear that God, legal? he's dead already. Yeah. <laughs> what, Make what, it stop. <laughs> what state were they in? Is that legal? Um, it's a lot of fun to watch the tape. This is going to be another fun game. This, this entire week is loaded with games like this. We started off with Dolphins Chiefs, obviously a premier game. This in both of our minds is a premier game as well. Yeah, it's, I I would favor Baltimore in it. I'm not going to pick Baltimore because like Gino can do 
Geno stuff at will. But I would favor Baltimore just because we've seen we've seen what they've done to some really other good teams uh, so far this year, and it's it's not pretty. Lamar's on a tear over his past five games too. Seventy percent completion, seven touchdowns, only two picks, and add to that three more rushing touchdowns. So we're talking about ten touchdowns he's accounted for over the last five games, like pretty much by himself. That's yeah. He's we've got a quarterback playing at the height of his powers, understanding the offense he's in. It's a really good look. You pair it with that powerful a defense behind you and backing you up and and both sides are just kind of leaning into the other going, hey, man, if we blitz and they get a touchdown, can you score points? Lamar's like, yeah, <laughs> like if they pick it off, can can you stop them and maybe run it back for six? And defense is like, yeah, 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 let's do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, next game on the docket, Buccaneers Texans. Uh, now, I, I will say we didn't just include this game because I'm a very, very, very biased Texans fan who wants an excuse to talk about the Texans. Uh, we also included it because the Bucks are, I don't want to say surprisingly plucky this year, but there was a lot of people who had very, very, very low expectations for this team coming into the year, and... <laughs> There we go. EJ is raising his hand. Uh, they've exceeded those expectations. Even if they are not an NFC power, they are certainly not at the bottom of the bottom of the barrel either. And uh, I I think as far as uh, what's the active rebuild? Is that the correct terminology? You know, I don't know. <laughs> the The correct terminology is we don't want to say rebuild. So we'll say anything else. Non- tanking rebuilds as far as those go <laughs> like they're doing a pretty good job they're competitive while also maintaining that all-important draft position uh they're, they're they're a plucky team i think that's probably the right word for it and i think baker is a personification of the team right now as its quarterback sometimes that happens sometimes it doesn't right now it certainly is he's played solid football he needs to continue to play solid football against what has been a very good defense um i was pretty sure we'd have an interception versus the buffalo secondary last week mm, didn't happen it's a very good secondary he's gonna have to keep that sheet clean again if he wants the bucks to be competitive and i know he does um third down efficiency's got to get better not only will it help keep his defense fresh which has been an issue few too many snaps for those guys but it'll also keep the ball out of the hands of the Texans and CJ Stroud's been really effective we'll talk about him in a second but it's kind of playing defense by playing good offense and extending drives he's been good the sort of mind meld between him and Dave Canales uh it's taken a few shots over the last couple of weeks but in general it's been really good and we've seen way more good Baker than bad Baker and the Bucks need for that to continue against uh you know, another team that's been surprisingly good in the Texans. Yeah, these are just two very uh, underappreciated teams. I think I think they get completely written off because we all acknowledge, like Texans fans acknowledge, like, yeah, we're not doing the thing this year. And Bucks fans acknowledge, like, yeah, we're not doing the thing this year. But Texans fans can go to Bucks fans and be like, oh, my God, but we love C.J. Stroud. And Bucks fans can go to Texans fans and be like, oh, my God, but did you see Kalijah Kansi? And we're just like two giddy little schoolgirls that are being completely ignored by the rest of the league. We have our young pieces that are super fun. We're looking forward to 2026 when we're all, like, really good again. But, like, it's it's fun. Like, it's fun. It's two solid, not terrible teams. They're going to go toe-to-toe. 
it's probably going to end up being a pretty decent game because of that. Like, even if it's not superpowers clashing, you know, like Baltimore and Seattle and all that, like, this is going to be a fun game. I think it's very evenly matched. And you get to see a lot of good talent on both sides of the ball. Um, some of it working out better than others. Damian Pierce, one of my favorites. A lot of people, hey, getting a lot of sort of like, EJ, what happened to Damian Pierce? Like, he's not averaging, he's averaging like three yards a carry. So I looked into it. <laughs> Room in the running game has been pretty hard to come by for the Texans. Of players with more than 100 attempts, Damian Pierce is second to last in the league with 0.6 yards before contact per attempt. That means he does not even get a clean yard before he gets touched. Just for juxtaposition, the league leader sees two and a half yards before they see contact. Who so is he's probably like, A-Chain, right? He's probably the league leader. Oh, that's a good question. I wasn't going to put you on the spot, but uh, it's not A-Chain. Or A-Chan, sorry. A-Chan. Uh, yes. Uh, no, is it, it is from powerhouse running team, uh, but maybe not the back you'd expect. It's DeAndre Swift. You know, I could see it. I could sure. see it. But it's definitely not. I mean, I'm just thinking about the wide-ass canyons that Miami's <laughs> generated at times. <laughs> like, In wow. general, that's true. But I, I, nothing's happened to Damian Pierce. He's still running like a freaking wildebeest with three cheetahs hanging off him every down. <laughs> um, he's still really good. Eventually, the offensive line for the Texans will be a little bit better, and he'll see a little bit more space. At that point, I would expect the production to come up. Um, but a lot of the other parts of this team are really fun. Stroud's cooled off a bit in terms of just like raw production wise. But the thing I love is his efficiency stayed really high. Seven TDs to one pick over the last five games, being really smart with the ball. Again, just like we said about Baker and the Bucks, like if he keeps that sheet clean, keeps them in it, uh, is efficient like he has been, the Texans have a chance in just about every game, which is not something I expected to say at the beginning of the season. So, uh, wild stat of the week <laughs> that uh, Adam Wexler tweeted out. So, CJ Stroud, right? This is his eighth career start. He's a baby. He's barely been doing this. He is still, or he still has more starting experience in his eighth career start than at least, at least six other quarterbacks in the NFL who will be starting this weekend have. Because he has more starts than Jaron Hall, Aiden O'Connell, Bryce Young, Will Levis, Clayton Toon, Tyson Bajan, and possibly a seventh if Brett Rippin goes. So um, he is officially eight weeks into his career already out of the bottom quadrant in terms of starting experience. Like that is that is how wild 2023 has been when it comes to the quarterback carousel. It is a. It, I saw that stat and I thought. Yeah, we don't tend to, we typically don't tend to think of things in that way. But when someone comes in like CJ Stroud, um, you know, plays well enough to earn the starting spot from week one and stays in the lineup, you rack up starts much more quickly than people that, you know, had to come in as backups to earn spot starts and then, you know, stayed in for a month and then the guy got healthy. And so then they didn't start two more games and they just sort of, piece them together when guys come in and you know earn the right early just keep it rolling they can add up experience really quickly which is what i was talking about with aiden 
is he's going to start to be on that train, or at least it sounds like he's going to start to be on that train now. And who knows? Clayton Toon could be in the same in the same boat here really quickly. And and Jaron Hall, who knows? All guys we were excited about seeing, and they're all going to get a bunch of reps. But Stroud's been getting his since day one. And, yeah, he can stand up there and look down at them like he's a senior looking at freshmen. Like, <laughs> I got eight starts, man. You got, like, one. Come on, let's go. Uh, defensively speaking, for both of these teams, honestly, like they're very similar defenses to each other between the twenties, very cover three heavy for both of them. Um, they're both really good in the red zone. If I recall correctly, they're tied in terms of, uh, red zone efficiency in terms of, um, oh no, it's not, it's not red zone efficiency, even though they're both good there too. Uh, it's points per game. That's what they're tied in. They're both sixth in the NFL at 18.3. And uh, considering the the similarities in terms of coverage structures and fronts and everything like that, that it's just like the Spider-Man meme, like they're both pointing back at each other. The main difference is that, um, and you, you're definitely going to see this when when the Texans get down in the red zone, like inside the 20 yard line. Honestly, once they get to like the 30, I swear the Bucks on the sidelines just start putting smelling salts in their face because they just they get freaking amped and then it's just bl- like they call zero like a third of the time inside the 25 yard line bodies flying everywhere everybody's crazed like, frothing at the mouth like this defense is batshit insane in the red zone and i mean that not just from a statistical pr- perspective but from like a play style perspective these dudes are nuts whenever like you're inside the 30 yard line uh super fun to watch ultra aggressive they have these giant corners outside that just beat the hell out of receivers all these linebackers are just blitzing constantly it's a chaotic mess of a defense but it's beautiful in in its own special unique uh insane way i really do love watching this team play football again they're not like amazing but they have this very unique brand of chaos that uh just intrigues me Beautiful disasters are fun to watch, and you know I think they both qualify in certain areas. One thing that's not a disaster, which I thought might be, uh, even though they drafted Will Anderson, the Texans' pass rush is inching up towards the top 10. They're about 14th, depending on the metric. Right now, total pressures, they are 14th. And Jonathan Gernard's surge is one of the reasons why. He had nine pressures last week to tie for second in the league with guys like Nick Bosa, Zach Allen, and Trey Hendrickson. He's been better, and his last two weeks, he has been playing like he's been hard on the smelling salts or his hair's been on fire or both. Like, he's been a real uh, game wrecker, shop wrecker, been in the backfield, messing stuff up. I would look for that to continue. He looks like he's rounded a little bit of a corner. Now, with younger pass rushers like that, sometimes we see the fits and starts and they don't hold on, but he's been there for a couple of weeks. I'm intrigued to see if he can hold on to it because he was a guy I felt like needed to be developed, had some neat skills when he came out, but I wasn't like, oh, he's just automatically going to be an instant impact guy. And he's getting towards the point where you have to account for him. And that's really good news for the Texans because they got Will Anderson on the other side. Yeah, it's just a really, really fun young defense. Um, they're linebackers. I mean, D'Amico being D'Amico, of yeah. course, you know, he's going to get the most out of his linebackers. But, I mean, Blake Cashman's had a great year. Henry Toto as a rookie, has made some plays. Like, really, all their linebackers, their entire linebacking core, they put, like, f- four inside linebackers on the field, field for significant snaps this year, and they've all played really well. 
Um, so it's, again, it's definitely a young defense, but I think the sky's the limit for what this group can be in the future. They're already rock solid. And again, they've been together for, for half of a season. I can only imagine as they keep adding talent, as they keep developing their youth, um, maybe add a couple pieces in free agency to kind of fill in the gaps here and there, but there's not that many gaps. Like this team's closer than you think. It, it really is. So I'm excited to see uh, what, what both these clubs are going to be in the future. I expect a very entertaining game. I don't think either fan base has expectations of doing anything in January. I think we're all just here to have a good time. And, and that's what this <laughs> game is going to be. It's going to be a good time. Feels like an even matchup, even if it's not a premier matchup. I think really good football can come out of even matchups, and this is a pretty evenly matched game. So I'm expecting what you're expecting, which is a fun football game that, you know, we should see some good plays from young players on both sides of the ball. And yeah, you know, crack a beer and we're here to have a good time, not a long time, right? Now, the matchup between actual contenders that will be there in January, who's both fan bases, honestly, are probably going to absolutely hate watching this game because it's going to be just full of anxiety. Cowboys-Eagles. This is the big one. This is, well, one of the big ones. <laughs> yeah, There's a lot of big ones this week. Uh, but as far as, you know, the, the obstacles for each other to get the first seed, Dallas and Philly has had each other circled basically since since summer, right? Because they got to face each other twice. Neither one of them can afford to get swept by the other because then seeding pretty much just <laughs> goes out the window. The division goes out the window. You have to at least split, and you for damn sure uh, have to defend home territory. So this game has massive, massive implications on playoff seeding. You could easily argue that it will determine ultimately who will be the first seed in the NFC because either Philly gets it and then pretty much I don't want to say like home free but they have they have a substantial enough buffer at that point that that they should be able to take the first seed or Dallas gets it Philly drops down to a two loss team and all of a sudden like hey we we got a race here so uh massive massive implications in this one um, talent all over the field really on both sides of the ball, like offensive and defensively, like these are two all-star teams going at it. Uh, it. It should be a huge, huge, huge game. So bright lights game for Dak and the offense. Cowboys have been up and down. We highlighted that in one of our podcasts last week, the sort of roller coaster nature of Dak's performances. He actually stacked two good ones in a row for the first time in terms of rating all year. So we'll see if he can make it three in a row or if he falls off the wagon. But they're going to have to show up early for Dallas to have a shot in this one. We know the Eagles offense very well. We've talked about it for weeks and weeks. We know the tear that A.J. Brown is on. They're going to have to match that. Really, the only way they can do it right now is Dak to CeeDee Lamb because Pollard's still not a factor. 55 total yards versus the Rams. He doesn't look right. He's, he's not the Tony Pollard that we're used to in terms of being a dynamic threat, both in the run game and the pass game. CD, on the other hand, is not quite A.J. Brown, but he's getting close. 12 for 158 and two TDs last week. He has been absolutely the, the center tent pole that's holding the whole thing up. And 
he's going to, it's weird to say one receiver is going to have to try and match another receiver because they don't play against each other. They play against the opposing defense, but he's going to have to try and match a lot of that AJ Brown production because if the Eagles are getting quick strike touchdowns and right now they are because AJ's on this historic tear, the only way that Dallas can really sort of strike back quickly and not you know, basically say, okay, we got to mount another 12 or 14 play drive to go match their six play touchdown drive. You know, you're just going to lose in that scenario is to get some of their big chunks of their own. And really the only player that's getting them right now is CD. So it's weird to say AJ and CD are going to square off in this one, but they kind of are. The one thing, well, not the one thing, Um, so there's a lot of things in this there's a lot of things on both sides yeah but one of the major things that i think um gives me more hope in dallas in this game than i expected to have two weeks ago is all of a sudden their offense is starting to look a little bit more modern and i don't know if this is a, a mike mccarthy thing or if his assistants like pulled him aside and said like hey Let's throw on some Miami tape. Let's throw on some Rams tape. Like let's let's look at what these guys, you know, Houston. Let's let's see what they're doing when it comes to more with less, or in Miami's case, more with more. And let's follow modern offensive trends. That modern offensive trend being motion at the snap. Dallas previously, before last week, when they crushed the Rams, who had been doing a more like a more with less coaching job throughout the year leading up to that game before they just got steamrolled by Dallas. Um, But leading up to that game, Dallas was down at like Pittsburgh levels in terms of using motion at the snap about four times a game. Meanwhile, Miami does it like 25 times a game, close to 30. Like it's, it's a lot. And you can see the results. They're very good at creating space. They're very good at generating explosives by using that space. Um, all great modern offenses in the NFL have a, a motion at the snap component to them. Dallas did not. And when they went up against the Rams and were up by like 30 by halftime, <laughs> one of the things that I found most interesting about that game is they more than tripled their motion at the snap usage. And they were getting their receivers free releases. They were helping CD to get open. Not that CD needs like a lot of help, but any advantage that you can give a player like that is crucial. And there's one that I can think of um, when I was watching film for, for doing my notes was in the second quarter, CD was matched up against a press corner from the Rams. And then Dallas went into empty. I believe it was on first down. Dallas went into empty. And they motioned Ferguson at the snap behind CD. And what that did, because the corner was supposed to be taken number one, as the ball was snapped, as Ferguson was motioning behind CD, the corner left CD and he was bumping out with the tight end as the safety was coming down to then be handling CD one-on-one, right? Because in the coverage look they were in, which I believe was quarters um in the coverage look they were on the safety was handling number two but he was coming from depth as the ball was snapped so the corner left cd ball is snapped cd has like eight yards of space between him and the safety who's still in the process of coming down and then he just easily crosses his face on the slant gets a super easy catch and then takes off for like 20 yards how hard is that like 
Miami does that again 20 25 times a game where they're using motion at the snap to make DBs have to adjust as the receiver is releasing it creates very easy releases it gives them leverage advantages it it makes it easier to get open Dallas didn't do that until last week and then the first time they did it they were up by 30 at halftime so it's like good god Mike could you not have done this since week one so again I have more hope in Dallas than I did two weeks ago because they started doing that but at the same time I'm really pissed that they weren't doing that the entire time it certainly gives them an advantage they will need against uh I don't want to say a quality opponent because the Rams we said were a quality opponent, are a quality opponent. The Eagles are a higher quality opponent than even that. It's not to demean the Rams' quality. It's to say the Eagles are farther along in their cycle. They're a Super Bowl-ready team. You're going to need every advantage you can get. And in terms of trying to stop that Eagles offense, Cowboys have a lot of stars on defense. And again, we've seen them be up and down as well. Unfortunately, not up on the same weeks as the offense. That's what we've been clamoring for with Dallas is like both sides of the ball playing together. That'd be great. Just crush somebody. They're going to need to both play well, because if either side has a letdown this week, the Eagles are good enough on both sides of the ball to overwhelm you and just wipe you off the field. First order of business, stopping the run, not going to be easy. Eagles lead the league in yards before contact per rush. We talked about that with DeAndre Swift. But Dallas is top 10 in EPA per play allowed versus the run, TFLs, and the eighth shortest depth of tackle versus the run. Bottom line, something's got to give. you got a good run defense versus one of the very best run offenses. We're going to see who's going to win this particular knockdown drag out. And it's going to go a long ways towards establishing who's going to be able to stay in this game because... The big flashes we talked about to CD and AJ Brown, but you're going to have to close games out like this late in the season. And it's going to come down to running the ball, killing the clock. You know, it's not necessarily what you're going to start with, but you got to be able to finish with it. And we're going to know more about each of these teams ability sort of to run the ball or stop in the run by the end of this one, because both teams are good on both sides of that Cowboys rushing attack, not great on offense, but all three other phases here are Top quality, top flight, top ranked in the NFL. And we're going to see that heavyweight fight play out when the Dallas defense is on the field. If they want to be able to get to rush the passer, they got to stop that run first. This is slightly related, um, but not really. Because <laughs> in my head while you were talking, you know, sometimes I drift off into sure. trying to chase a, chase a rabbit in my brain. I know I wanted to talk about Deron Bland here. And in my head, I was like, was EJ the one who was the the Deron Bland uh, fan club leader coming out of the draft? The, I think that was you, right? The weird thing is I was, but not for all the reasons he's displaying. So Deron Bland coming out, played a lot of safety. He played a little bit of corner and he was a hitter. He was an absolute freaking hammer. And I, that's what caught my eye for Deron Bland and made me watch more tape. And that's why I liked him coming out. He was a high-energy safety that I thought could float to nickel maybe, uh, depending on you know maybe just three safety packages in terms of what you're characterizing a DB as. But he, was, he would fly to the ball, and he was an absolute hammer as a tackler. He was not the biggest guy. 
And so I loved him and thought, hey, here's a great player that you can get in the third or fourth round. He can be a special teamer, whatever. He's playing outside corner for the Cowboys and crushing it. He's playing it as well as anybody in the league. I know you dug up a bunch of stats. Uh, We saw him in person versus the Patriots and uh, the guests that we took to the game. I leaned over to him for the game. I was like, 26, man, watched around Bland. He was like, okay, whatever. And like, he got the pick six right in front of us. And I was like, told you like, but that's not why I loved him. That's the crazy thing is it's, you like a player for one thing. He comes out, he's gotten way better than I ever expected. So I only kind of half want to take credit of being the, you know, the bus driver of the Dron Bland fan club, because I loved him for a completely different reason. And everything he's been doing this season, nothing I expected from him. And it's all awesome. He tied the all-time NFL record for most number of pick sixes in a team's first seven games. Any team, not just the Cowboys, but any team's mm-hmm. first seven games of the year with three. So he's got three pick sixes, and we're not even all the way through the halfway point of their season. Not only that, in man coverage, he's allowing an average of 14 yards per game in man. And this is a defense that going into this week i'd have to double check to make sure it's still true but going into this week at least they were second in the nfl in man coverage so they leave him in they leave him in man a lot and he just doesn't give anything up and when you do throw at him he's more likely to score on you than you are on him so i would argue so far he has been having a more impressive season than the one that Trayvon Diggs had in 2021 when he was an All-Pro. Because not only does he get the ball production that Diggs had, he's not giving up the the first downs and the catches that Diggs did. Like he's, it's it's all the flash, none of the lack of efficiency. I, I would call it. He's been incredible. If he keeps doing this, or even if he does like 70% of this the rest of the year, he's going to be first-team All-Pro. His efficiency, especially playing outside corner, which he played a little of in college, but not as much, has been eye-opening. And then the sort of pure ball hawk, like as we're checking those boxes going down, watching film, like I did not have ball hawk for Deron Bland. I had energy. I had good eyes, great angles, a lot of speed, big hitter, like all things you can use in a secondary, all, all employable skills in the NFL. Not like, hey, he's going to be a lockdown outside corner that's going to be a ball hawk and score when he picks it off. Like, I would have been like, maybe. In the fifth round, by the way. Yeah, I was like, (laughs) maybe. But that's why he went in the fifth round. He wasn't doing this stuff in college, and he has continued to improve. And maybe it was in him the whole time, and his college coach didn't know it. Who knows? That does happen. We see that with players. But to come to the biggest stage, to be replacing a guy who is known as one of the premier ball hawks in the league, and that's why he got his big deal, and to basically outplay him production-wise in the same phase of the game, unreal. Now, flipping it over to the other matchup, uh, Eagles defense against Cowboys offense. Um, It's possible they get Tyron Smith back at left tackle this week from a stinger. He was suited up before the game last week and then got told like literally at the very last second that he wasn't cleared. Like they announced him as a team captain for the game and everything. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, you're not playing. So uh, I would guess he's going to play this week, but I guess we'll see. Um, And then on the other side, somebody who would be theoretically going against Tyron uh, on a few plays here and there. 
Jalen Carter had an MRI on his back on Monday, and then Nick Sirianni said, quote, he feels better. But as of the time of us recording this, we have no idea if he's going to go. Maybe he will. I don't know. Like, Jalen's been kind of banged up over the last few games, but when he's right, he is he is literally one of the best three techniques in the NFL already, like one of the highest pressure percentages. He's an incredible mm-hmm. run stopper. So obviously the Eagles would, would love to have him because somebody's going to have to go against Tyler Smith. <laughs> and I, I think Jalen's one of the few three techniques who might be able to give him an issue. Schematically, this is where you're going to see teams try and neutralize other players by making sure they don't sort of get their hand on more than one player. Right. Mm -hmm. Tyler Smith is crushing. And it reminds me, strangely enough, of like corner wide receiver matchups, talking to like other college coaches about what they did about Sauce Gardner. Like, did they Mm -hmm. put their best guy out there? And a bunch of people were like, nope, we put a scrub out there and just had him run routes. It was just cardio. Like, we just we just wanted to attach him. And I feel like that's kind of what you want to do with Tyler Smith. You don't want to like double team him because he's going to hold up versus that. Like you, you want to get one guy on him overload or ideally like put a guy in front of him and then remove and just kind of have him standing there looking for work. Like that's ideal because if you try and like overwhelm him right now, you're most likely not going to win. You might, if you're Philadelphia, cause you have more talent on the defensive line than just about anybody in the NFL. But I'll be real interested to see what Sean Desai does to kind of game the inside of that line. And again, take those extra guys and replace and focus pressure on maybe the left tackle if they don't get transmit uh, back. So, you know, Take it from the strengths and put it towards the weaknesses and see if you can pry something open. Because, again, it's strength on strength. The Cowboys offensive line, really good. And we all know that the Philly defensive line has been excellent and comes in waves. These games are going to be fun to watch. And I mean the games within the games, in the trenches on both sides to see who can sort of maximize those advantages and, you know, if they have them, protect their weaknesses. Uh, Also... One last note on the Eagles' defense. Their corners need to show up. All right. They they brought them back. They explicitly paid them to go on this run. They're older guys. They've been struggling a lot this year so far. Like, if there was ever a game for them to show up, I mean, Slay and Bradbury, this is the one. You got to do it. It's a division game against another NFC power. Like they're challenging for the first seed. You're barely holding on to the first seed right now. You got to stay in front of Detroit. <laughs> they're only a game back from you. Like you got to show up. And there's, there's really no other more important matchup on the field to me than CD and Brandon Cooks, at least for uh, Eagles defense against Cowboys offense. There's no more important matchup for me than cooks and cd against these corners because if cooks and cd uh are absolutely massacring slay and bradbury outside like it's going to be a long day it's going to be a really really long day because the cowboys interior offensive line is one of the few that i think could give dak a long enough pocket to to attack this secondary like the eagles defense has kind of gotten by on the fact that they force you to get it out really really quick (laughs) This Cowboys uh, guard center guard trio can give Dak 
enough time to to work this secondary. So the secondary is going to have to make some plays. If they don't, it's going to be rough, like really, really rough. Yeah, cracks have started to show in the outside corner ranks for Philly, whether it's age or whether they're just not playing very well. doesn't really matter. The results have been a little shaky enough to the point that Philly was sniffing around the corner market before the trade deadline. After they added Kevin Byard, they were looking for a corner as well because they've got an injury at Nickelback. Like Sidney Brown has slid over to that spot. You know, thank heavens he's versatile. Like another good mm-hmm. draft piece that, you know, he can slide over and play nickel, even though he's mostly a safety in college because they need him to. Like all three corners, not just their outside corners, have showed up as more vulnerable over the past couple of weeks. And again, yeah, a lot of that's been disguised by a very efficient pass rush, but you've got two good, very good outside receivers coming in. If they get on top of those corners early and Dak hits a couple of them, we could have a whole different game from the get-go because I'm not sure that Philadelphia has the reserves like they do in most other position rooms to sort of roll in the reinforcements and go, oh, it's okay, no problem, bring him out, we got another one. They they kind of don't. They need those guys to just buck up and play well, and if they don't, it's going to get ugly. All right, last game of the week uh, and potentially the best of them all. No offense to all the other crazy <laughs> great AFC games, and NFC yeah. superpowers we've talked about so far, but um, Bengals-Bills has a little something extra to it for me because Joe Burrow is back. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, leftover consternation from the Bills side of things from last year for uh, for how the division round went down. Um, I don't want to say that there's no love lost between these two fan bases either, but it's definitely not happy-go-lucky on Twitter this week either. I think uh, I, I think the Bengals and the Bills are a proper AFC rivalry at this point because both teams know they got to go through each other. You know, we didn't even get a regular season matchup last year, which was also kind of the source of of a lot of the consternation because of how uh, how the league handled uh, the seeding and everything, which the league handled it the best possible way they could, in my opinion. I, I had no sure. dog in that fight. But there was, a, there was a lot of back and forth between both fan bases leading into that divisional game. And then obviously, uh, you know, the Bills lost by like 17. They got ran ran over because of no Daquan Jones. This, this, the season that should have been the coronation of Josh Allen ended prematurely at the hands of Joe Burrow. Then this season starts, Joe Burrow's banged up, the Bengals look awful, everybody writes him off, me included. I was like, oh, I don't know about this. Like, this doesn't look great at all. And then, magically, they became the Bengals again once Joe's calf healed. And even though if the playoffs started today, since he would not be in them, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who doesn't consider them a top-three team in the AFC. So there's a lot riding on this game in terms of playoff seeding, in terms of unfinished business, in terms of uh, you know potential tiebreakers when it comes to, uh, to who's going to whose house in January. There's a lot in this one, EJ, and I expect it to be a damn good football game. 
Bengals dug themselves a little bit of a hole at the beginning of the season through injury. I don't really want to say any fault of their own, but they, they did not play great football for the first month. So every game down the stretch means a little bit more to them because, yes, they are playing like one of the very top teams in the AFC right now. I ex- We expect that to continue. However... <laughs> Yeah, there's a little bit of extra sauce on top of this one. Might be the biggest test of the year for Josh Allen's patience. Uh, and his shoulder's a little bit wonky. We found out he was out of practice today. Again, recording this on a Wednesday. Originally, we heard he was going to be limited as we were winding up for this one. And then it got updated by Mike Garofalo that no, he wasn't limited. He was out. So just more drops of intrigue for this particular matchup. I fully expect that Josh Allen's going to play, especially in this game. He's If he's walking on one leg, he's going to be out on the field. <laughs> but Anarumo's going to tempt him to the limit with Ben, but don't break defense. They're going to, they're going to say, Josh, we're going to give you all these opportunities underneath, or at least that's what they're going to show. But they're going to say, Nope, you're not going to be able to unleash the dragon against us. You're not going to be able to gun it over our head. 60 yards. We're going to make you take eight, 10, 12 yards down the field. Every time you're going to have to do it between 10 and 14 times to get to the end zone. Will you stay in the barn? Right. That's going to be the game plan. And Josh came out. He was talking with Kevin Clark on his podcast this week, and he talked about that and said, yeah, I know that's the book on me. And I've been victim of that and I need to do a better job of it. And, yep, I can do that. This is this is the acid test of whether or not, you know, the rubber hits the road when the game's on the line. And if. Joe and the Bengals come out and start putting up points. Again, this is kind of offense versus offense, even though they're not on the field at the same time. If the Bengals come out and say, let's say, theoretically throw up touchdowns on their first two drives. Oh, the heat's going to crank up mm-hmm. on Josh to cape up and go, I can do it, guys. I can win it. I can be the difference. And he's going to have to fight that urge and kind of do the opposite. I'm not saying take all the explosion out of Josh Allen's game. That would limit the player in a way that you don't want, but he cannot fall suspect to, I can win it with one throw. He can't lock on to digs all day. He's got to take what the defense gives him. He's got to be patient, and he's got to continue that no matter what the score is because Buffalo actually plays better football when they do that. And when he doesn't, that's what the Bengals are waiting for. That's what they want. They want Josh to cape up, put it all on his shoulders, and start chucking it up. Because if he does, they're going to pick it off. They're going to get extra possessions, and that's going to be the end of this game. Early on in the Tampa game, you know, we said it live. Like he was, he was doing that. You know, it was working the quick game. He was throwing it to Khalil Shakir. He was throwing it to Dalton Kincaid. <laughs> like Diggs wasn't getting any targets, but like the offense was moving and they were working. Um, and we're like, oh my God, this is it. Like this, we, we've been waiting to see this, right? Second half, they started stalling out. Wasn't necessarily because Josh was was taking shots that he shouldn't have. Uh, they just had some some really rough luck on on second down in particular. They took a second down sack that ruined a drive that was on the precipice of getting to the red zone. They had another one. It was like second and nine. Ball got bad at the line of scrimmage. Led to a third and nine. They got like seven on that punted it away so you know second down was kind of hell for them in the in the second half and like we said Tampa's got a very solid defense with some really really physical corners like they're top six in scoring 
You, you expect them to get some stops on their own. But it was really the first half of the game that, that showed like, hey, that can work. It can mm-hmm. absolutely work. Um, the one thing that I would, I would also add on to that is I don't advocate for taking the ball out of Josh's hands. What I will advocate for is zigging instead of zagging if the defense tells you to zig. And by that, I mean run the ball on first down from under center. Uh, We saw the 49ers do that against Cincy last week, and Cincy was really soft against outside zone. Average depth of tackle about 4.8-ish yards, especially from under center. Um, There's something about under center runs that they still haven't quite nailed down this year even though they are a defense that themselves plays a lot of cover three with the safety in the box quite a bit like seems just open up on them even when they're playing in in covered structures and fronts where the seams on paper shouldn't be there it's more of an execution thing but hey use that execution to your advantage (laughs) if under center outside zone is hammering Cincy on first down that is what you should be doing the Bills a have the second lowest run rate on first down in the league as in percentage of their calls that are runs but they have a very very high success rate when they do it they're like fourth highest in success rate in the nfl so they also don't call a lot of under center runs a lot of the runs are from shotgun like they're they're 22nd in terms of number of runs being from under center so i would lean against their normal run game tendencies and against their normal play calling tendencies period and call some under center runs, do what's worked against Cincy, you know, make it second and five so that Josh, when he is doing all the quick game passing stuff to, to Shakir and to Dalton and, and to all them that he was doing, you know, at that point, if you're stacking those runs together and you're stacking those quick throws together and everything's getting first downs and you're rolling like, yeah, then all of a sudden it's a lot easier to put together an 11 play drive, right? So that's what I would advocate for. And they did just sign Leonard Fournette. Like maybe they'll do that with him. But it's it's not that I want to take the ball out of Josh Allen's hands. It's that I want to call an offense that statistically is proven to be effective. And I think the last thing they should do is sit there in shotgun on first and 10 and throw, throw, throw when Lou probably wants them to throw, throw, throw. You have to limit the amount of times Josh's decisions can get him into trouble because he is extremely gifted. There's no denying that he can push the ball down the field to really just about any depth. And he has talented receiving targets to do it. But there are times he shouldn't. There are times when there is a smarter play available that will keep the entire offense on schedule and basically take the stress off of him and that's how you want him to play is as stress-free as possible. Now he's going to have to run some in this game because the defense is going to provide him opportunities to do that. He is big and strong. He is going to, in those situations, have to sort of deny the tendency in himself to want to run people over because there are some freaking hammers in this defense and he's already got a gimpy shoulder. Last thing you need is one Allen replacing the other at quarterback in Buffalo. You need Josh on the field. I believe that even at 60 or 70%, he's better than the backup. So keep the hits down. Again, don't not run. He's a great runner. 
But don't try and run over people. Be smart. Give up a couple extra yards. Go down a little bit early. That's fine. Again, take what the defense gives you. Stand up. Be ahead of the sticks. Move on to the next play. Live to fight another day. If they follow that protocol, they have a chance in this one. If they don't, they probably don't. Uh, On specifically uh, the Bengals' defensive side of things, you know, focusing on the people that are going to be trying to stop Josh Allen and all of his ridiculous physical ability. Um, cover three, like I said, kind of their bread and butter. They they stick in these middle field close structures the vast majority of the time because when they're not in cover three, they're in cover one. Um, they will mix in some cover two. They'll mix in some two man. They'll mix in a little bit of quarters, but that's more of a change up. You know, it's a side dish. The entree is cover three, right? Uh, Or really just middle field close in general. Um, One of the reasons why they can do that so much is because they have Dax Hill, who (laughs) in their mind is going to be their Earl Thomas. Their rangy free safety who, if we absolutely need to, he can go down and play the slot. We can blitz him, tackles in space, like... He's kind of the guy that makes it go on the back end. Like his range allows them to play that style. Um, And not to mention his range allows them to get away, uh, get away with a lot in terms of how they bring pressure because they're a pretty heavy team in terms of, you know, bringing three, three fire zones, i.e. their excuse to get Mike Hilton to go kill quarterbacks. You need to have range on the back end if you're trying to cover an entire field with six guys instead of seven, right? So he he's kind of the secret sauce for that defense. Like, he's not the best player on the defense. The best player's probably Trey. But in terms of we play this style because we have this guy, like, he is kind of what makes it work, in my opinion. And the two guys underneath him, they have an excellent inside linebacker duo, They're going to be very involved in the pass game. They were last week coming up with two big interceptions that really turned that game. They're going to be the ones holding Dawson Knox and Dalton Kincaid in check on a lot of plays. Typically, that's more of a nickelback's role, and you'll see some of that, but when the Bills line up with the tight end in line, it's going to be one of those two inside linebackers, and that's not the mismatch that it is against a lot of other teams. When you have athletic pass-catching tight ends going against linebackers, you usually think advantage tight end. Not necessarily against Logan Wilson and Jermaine Pratt. So they're going to be some really fun battles to watch there. Mike Hilton, as you said, X-Factor for Anarumo. Loves to blitz him off the edge. Just send him like an absolute missile to go hit people. And look, they're going to be trying to put hits on Josh Allen. Everybody's trying to put hits on the opposing quarterback. It's, it's nothing mean or to try and knock him out of the game. But if you know a guy has a gimpy shoulder and you can stack some hits on him early in the game, means he's not going to hang in the pocket as much. He's going to get rid of the ball a little sooner than he should. Those are all advantages for the defense. In terms of Dax Hill, I kind of want to put a Fitbit on him for this one. I know he has a GPS (laughs) tracker on his pads, but he's going to run a lot of miles in this one because he's going to be the guy over the top in those deep, you know, single high safety structures. He's going to be doubling digs when they double digs. He's going to be the guy trying to cap Gabe Davis on the straight nines. Like, he's going to run a lot of miles in this one. 
flipping over to uh, the Bengals' offense again, we've we've talked a lot about Joe and and him him being Joe again, right? Uh, <laughs> when we did our our Week Eight recap, he's he's done some Houdini stuff. I think it was Goodberry posted a video yep. of like a. a like a frame by frame breakdown of like all the crazy stuff that happened on just one single play, you know, uh, in terms of manipulating the pocket, uh, getting out of a sack, getting out of another sack, uh, and then, you know, getting his eyes downfield and just throwing a dart perfectly placed. Like right before he got obliterated, he, yeah, linebacker right in the ribs. Yeah. He's just so good. And that play is Joe. Yeah. That play is Joe. And so he's back. 100%. Hundred percent, and uh, I think if you happen to play against the Bengals in the first three weeks, you should consider yourself very lucky <laughs> because that is the worst they will be this year. Like you got them at the absolute bottom; it is only up from here, and they are they are absolutely ascending because Joe is ascending. Um, but he's not the only one, you know. I I would um, I would say that Jamar Chase is also starting to look like Jamar Chase again. I would say Irv Smith is starting to at least get used. <laughs> Irv Smith sightings. It all you know? comes off the deep plays to Chase, right? And that had to do with Burrow, right? His calf was there. We said it. He couldn't set his base. He couldn't throw the long ball to Chase. And this offense, like even we said it a couple of weeks ago, like, I don't know. It doesn't seem like one play is a thing. That's not going to fix it. It fixes it. It absolutely yeah. fixes it when Joe is back and they are throwing down the field to Jamar Chase. Not not just the stuff they had to throw in the first three weeks when he was, you know, when he couldn't really drive the ball. Now that he can drive the ball again, that play opens up everything. Mixing his back up to ripping off five plus per carry. So what happens when you're terrified of Jamar Chase? It gives a little bit more space. Irv Smith, all the areas that he's working in, they're all open because you've got to pull somebody to go double chase T Higgins had, you know, came off the milk carton and had some production because again, you're doubling Jamar chase. You're like, man, that's the play that makes it all work. we got to make sure that play doesn't work. And then everything else works. Mixon, Tyler Boyd, Smith, like literally everything else works because of that play. It's, it's craziness, but it's true. You talk about the, the vertical ability at chase and how that makes everything else work. And I feel like um, I feel like Douglas against Chase might kind of define the Bengals offense versus Bills defense matchup because if anybody is kind of built to stop vertical balls down the sideline, it's Rasul Douglas with the length and the ball skills, and you know it's it's going to be really really interesting if his presence outside because clearly the Bills were like. We don't know if we have anybody else that could do that. <laughs> I'm very curious to see if his presence outside then forces the Bengals to to shift their passing game in the sense that they start playing in a similar way to what they did against Arizona, right? Where it's getting the ball out quick. It's a lot of catch and run stuff. It's, uh, you know, as Hank Stram would say, matriculating the ball down the field. I'm curious to see if the Bills force the Bengals to try to play in that way. Um, and then whoever is just best at sustaining 10 play drives wins the game. Like that's, <laughs> that's what it might come down to, right? Is, is who can sustain long drives? Cause I don't know if either defense is going to allow any explosives. 
you know what this game, you know what's going to happen in this game now that we've said this, now that we spend the last 15 minutes talking about this in detail. 38-35, for sure. It's going to happen. No, like 40-42, like Diggs is going to have 150 and Jamar Chase is going to have 170 and they're just going to be lighting them off every other play. We're going to be like, oh, fine, fine, sure. Just Khalil Shakir, yeah. four touchdowns. Yeah, right. it's going to happen. Be, be that way. <laughs> Um, he's gonna be on my bench that's why that's why yes leave him on your bench buffalo fans will thank you later overall i'm just really really excited for this game um i think i think in terms of afc implications naturally this is going to be one of the ones that has the most impact on seating and obviously i mean whoever's hosting a playoff game has a massive advantage because nfl playoff atmospheres in general at home are just a massive advantage. So there's a lot riding on this one. Um, if, if I had to pick, <laughs> who man, um, God, if I had to pick, I mean, the Josh Allen shoulder concerns me a little bit, but also he's kind of a cyborg and he plays through it anyway. Yeah. He's going to play no matter what, but it's how much it affects him. If I had to pick, I'm going to go Bengals because they look like the fully operational battle station, both sides of the ball for the first time all year. And it's it's awe inspiring. It's the same team that we saw late last year just tearing through the league. Like the defense is good. We've sung lose praises to the rafters. He's got plenty of players on that side of the ball to make his scheme work. And now Joe's back and you go, oh, yeah, look at all the playmakers on offense. He's hitting them all like they feel like they're peaking. The Bills feel like they're a little bit banged up, including josh and they haven't been clicking along at that super high level so it just feels like where the teams are in their arcs i'll give the edge to the Bengals, but i still think this is going to be a really competitive and like i'm going to be focusing on this one it's probably going on the big screen oh i think it's sunday night right i think it's a sunday night game oh yeah then it's everything else is off the room gets dark (laughs) light that puppy up and just focus actually hold on now that I think about it, let me double check this, but I think all these games might be back to back to back to back to back in different time windows. So it's 6.30 a.m. for Dolphins yep. Chiefs. Okay, well, for, again, we're West Coast. Um, yep. 6.30 for Dolphins Chiefs, 10 for Seahawks Ravens, Cowboys Eagles is 125, and then it's Bengals. So we can watch all of them. That's awesome. Do you know how rare it is that we get to watch all four of the best games back to back to back without missing anything? Yeah, I was going to say solo. I mean, I I watch all the games here. That was one of the parts of rebuilding the studios. I have like eight and ten if I need to games on. Um, so I see. I'll probably anyways, I'll but. double box the Texans Bucks game with with Seahawks Ravens. But like the fact that I don't have to watch all in a quad box all four of them at the same time and try to keep now that that great. would stink if they were all in the same time frame. Then you can't concentrate the way you need to. But uh, yeah, this is. This weekend's going to be a treat. We saw this weekend on the schedule. Uh, we knew that it was going to be some special football. And I think the way the season's played out has done nothing to diminish that and probably has amped it up a little bit. All right, let's get to parting glass. Final segment. Obviously, the show's been quite a long one, so we'll make this quick. Um, we did not talk about the 49ers. You know, they are on that three-game skid, um, but... They still managed to win their bye week because they got Chase Young 
for a compensatory third round pick. This is an edge rusher who out of all edges with 100 plus snaps this year, pass rush snaps this year. He is, I want to double check my numbers here, ninth in pressures and 12th in pass rush win rate. This is a very, very good player. And I don't know if he's going to be there long term. This kind of feels like just a rental for going on a run because they needed a little bit more pass rush help. Like Nick Bosa uh, is doing Nick Bosa things, but every other edge on the team hasn't quite pulled their weight. So they're trying to add add another one. And who better than a guy who's all also in the top 10 in pressures next to Nick Bosa and a former Ohio State teammate. Uh, this is this is going to be awesome. And, uh, you know, you're giving somebody that talented to Chris Kasurik. Even if they don't keep him past this year, they're going to get a third-round comp pick back for him anyway when he signs somewhere else. So you're basically just getting Chase Young for free. And that's great. I love that for them. The potential payoff for them is massive. If he stays healthy, they're geniuses. If he doesn't, it was a compensatory third-round pick. Like, there's no reason not to make this move the way they made it. And it should terrify some opposing offenses. It's a lot of firepower to their pass rush. Speaking of good GMing, the trade deadline football, never going to be what the trade deadline in baseball is, but it's still fun. You just have to dig a little bit deeper. One of the most fun, I think, under-the-radar moves that happened uh, for me is Donovan Peoples-Jones moving from the Browns to the Lions. I love DPJ's skill set when he was coming out of Michigan, especially as a big down-the-boundary receiver who could win balls 15 to 20 yards right in that cover two hole. And I think, you know, He's still got that in him. We didn't see it a ton with the Browns. The Lions could use some production in that phase of their passing game right now, so it's a good match. I feel like it's a little bit of a steal for Brad Holmes and the Lions that a lot of people maybe even didn't see. And while it's not the high-profile 49ers move, I still think that's really good GMing. Wow, we actually did a parting glass quickly. Good for us, EJ. <laughs> we Better every week, man. Once. Better every week. Uh, All right. I want to thank our executive producers over on the Patreon in the executive producer tier, Marat, Consti, Andrew, Liam, Connor, and Mike L. Appreciate all of you boys as usual for helping to make this possible. Uh, Also, thank you to our clothing partner, Homage. If you guys are looking for any sort of NFL team gear, anything at all, they have the official NFL license. So you can find... um, you know, t-shirts, hoodies, starter jackets. Again, they got everything. So anything you get from homage to support your team also happens to support, hopefully, your favorite NFL podcast. Cough, cough us. Uh, We get a portion of every single sale through our link in the description. So if you're in need of gear for yourself or with the holidays coming up, gear for anybody that you love, feel free to check out homage down below. And uh, of course, we'd appreciate that. And uh, with that, EJ, let's get ready to go watch some really, really good football games that are probably not going to go anything like what we expect so that we can then talk about them once again on Monday. <laughs>